Our passage on which the sermon is based is 2 Samuel 9, and as Shelton said, we've been looking at the life of David this fall. There's, there's been quite a lot to look at. I, I hope you found it helpful, um, engaging. I, I've certainly enjoyed uh, preaching it. I plan to start a sermon series in the Gospel of John uh, at the start of Advent, but I think we have about five David sermons left. You know, in the Gospels, like Jesus is never called the son of Moses. And as far as I can remember, I don't think he's ever called the son of Abraham either. But he repeatedly is referred to as the son of David. And I, th- I think that language doesn't simply mean that he is a descendant you know, of David. I think we can go a little further with that language. When David, you know, great King David of the Old Testament, when David is at his best we really are getting a window into the heart of our king. You know, this is giving us a window into, into Christ. And in this passage today, David is certainly at his best. Um, it's one of the greatest pictures of a good shepherd, I think, in the Old Testament. It's one of the greatest pictures of what love looks like. And we'll even unpack that word a little bit more in the Hebrew. Um, 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David and the king said to him, are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, Lodabar, however you say it, from the house of Makir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, uh, he probably said it, your servant, and I, trembling in his voice. And David said to him, do not be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that had belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. That's a significant verse, isn't it? He ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. It's a mouthful. (laughs) I knew we were going to have some trouble in this sermon today. You try saying that word three times really quickly. It's like nearly impossible. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. 
because he always ate at the king's table. Notice a the theme here. And he was crippled in both his feet. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that name is a mouthful. In Hebrew, do you have any idea what Mephibosheth I should start just saying M. <laughs> his name is M. Any idea what Mephibosheth, what his name means in Hebrew? My shame is scattered. So his backstory is very important to appreciating this passage. You know, obviously he's the son of Jonathan, the grandson of King Saul. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel ends detailing the story of Jonathan and Saul's death on um, the mountainside at the hands of the Philistines. And it says that when word of, of, the, sing, of the king's death reached the household of Saul, it was met with just everyone panicked. And there's this commotion. They're, they're fleeing for their lives. And a nursemaid picks up young Mephibosheth to carry him or lead him away. And in so doing, she dropped him. It snapped both of his ankles. Now, we're, you know, modern medicine, we, we're left to wonder, you know, what could account for that? I mean, did he have some form of bone deficiency? You know, how, how does that happen? And it, it never tells us how particularly. Uh, we assume that they tried to reset the bones properly. I mean, they used whatever modern medicine, whatever was modern medicine in, in their day. But for whatever reason, the bones didn't heal. So for the rest of this man's life, he was crippled in both of his feet and he was never able to walk properly again. Fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 9. The story resumes. Mephibosheth and this remnant of Saul's household is living on the east side of the Jordan River Valley in a town, a village. We read it. It's the village of Lodabar, which in Hebrew can mean either one of two things, no pasture, low is no, no pasture, or no communication. You know, what, what, is, what kind of place is this? I mean, it's, an, it's nowhere. It's a nowhere place. It's no man's land. And you have to wonder, I don't want to make too much of this, but... You just have to wonder, I mean, how many times did this man kind of think about what might have been, right? I mean, here he is. He would have been groomed to be the next prince of Israel. He was going to be somebody. And now he's living in no man's land. He, he has a name that, that, you know, speaks of his own shame and disgrace He's crippled. He, he must have felt like the curse of God was upon him. He's a, he's a victim. I mean, because none of it was his fault. He didn't do anything, did he, to deserve this? I mean, it, it, he's just on the receiving end, kind of the, just the receiving end of life in a sin-cursed world. And then David, he hears, has been searching the land from top to bottom, looking for any trace of Saul's descendants. And when David's emissaries arrive in Lodabar, asking for Mephibosheth, telling him that he's wanted by the king in Jerusalem, it certainly means that he's, he's as good as dead. I mean, there could be no other interpretation of that piece of information, right? I mean, every king, standard operating procedure, 
You come to the throne, you ascend to the throne, you wipe out entirely, you exterminate all of the previous king's family because they are, of course, a threat to your kingdom. There could be no other way to interpret that news. So uh, Mephibosheth, he can't walk. They put him on the back of a donkey. He has a several-day journey to Jerusalem where he, he basically gets to spend all that time thinking about his own gruesome demise. He's going he's gonna to die, and it's going to be ugly. And then he comes into David's presence We know that he is trembling because the very first words out of David's mouth are, do not be afraid. Mephibosheth, the the English in our translation doesn't do it justice, but it says he literally fell on his face before David, which must have been a a painful thing to do for a man in his condition. And you notice how he refers to himself? He, He calls himself, I mean, the only thing in the ancient world worth less than a dog is what? A dead dog. And that is how he refers to himself. What, who, am, who am I? A, a dead dog. And in verse 7, we read this. David said to him, do not be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. That's a fairly limp English word to get across one of the most important Hebrew words in all of the Bible. And it's the word, you may be familiar with it, chesed. It's a fun word to say, right? You get to you know, get that phlegm in the back of your throat. Chesed. And it's often translated as steadfast love, loyal love, covenant love. So what has happened? Mephibosheth, the man whose life is... You know, scattered in shame and disgrace. The man who has no future. The man who is as good as dead comes into David's presence. And something happens that he cannot even dream of. That David is determined to show him chesed for the sake of Jonathan. For the sake of the covenant that David had made with Jonathan. That David had promised. That David, that David had covenanted. That he, he had obligated himself. Um, And it would probably, it was probably 15 to 20 years ago that he had made that original covenant with David at great personal cost. Um, But he has obligated himself to show, to show this most beleaguered human being, chesed. All right, that's the backstory. Funny story, at least I found this funny. (laughs) I did find it funny. Franklin Roosevelt made a speech in Pittsburgh in 1932 advocating restraint in government spending. Well, four years later, he decided he wanted to return to Pittsburgh, and he wanted to give a speech advocating for government spending. And so he asked one of his political advisors, you know, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I flip-flop on the issue without looking as though I'm, I'm doing a flip-flop? <laughs> and the advisor said to him, very simply, he said, just deny that you made a speech in 1932 in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Just say, it didn't happen. I, uh, nobody was there, right? <laughs> and David could have done that. He could have done something like that. It had been 15 to 20 years ago. It was a private conversation between him and Jonathan. David was only 19. He was young. He was dumb. He was naive. He shouldn't have been entering into covenants at the age of 19. I can almost guarantee you that David's political advisors would have 
strongly, strongly condemned this idea that you're going to take the great-grandson of King Saul and bring him into the royal court and, in essence, make him part of the royal family. He's going to be like a son at your table. Um, No doubt, his political advisors would have said, well, you don't have to be bound by a commitment that you made at the age of 19. But, friends, here is the power of covenant. Here is the power of obligations that had been made before the Lord. Professor, there's a professor at the University of Virginia, Mark Edmondson. He wrote an article. You can find it online. It's called Dwelling in Possibilities. He wrote it for the Chronicle of Higher Education a few years ago. Uh, And I want to just say at the beginning before I read the quote, I'm not picking on college students. Really, I'm not picking on you. Because everything that is articulated in this article, I think this is just all of us. This is is America today. But here's what, what he said. I'll kind of summarize it. I'll quote parts of it. He writes, "My my students are what I would refer to as possibility junkies. For as much as they want to do and actually manage to do, they always strive to keep their options open, never ever to shut their to, to shut their possibilities down, which means that they are commitment averse. They cannot commit to one thing or two things. Um, he goes on, you know, ask an American college student what he's doing on Friday night. Ask him at 5.30 on Friday afternoon. Most likely, the first response you'll hear is, I don't know. But then will come a list of possibilities that make the average Chinese buffet menu look restrictive. The concert, the play, the movie, the party, the stay at home, the chilling, the the chillaxing, the, you know, there's all of these things. Um, And once, once they do go somewhere, wherever where might be, what you'll find is that there's no there there. There's no there there. At a student party, for instance, um, everyone has their cell phones out. And what are they doing? They're talking to their friends. About what? About another party they might conceivably go to. And naturally, at that party, uh, that party is better than the one they're at right now or the one they're not at right now. <laughs> though, though, of course, there will be people at the other party on their cell phones thinking the same thing. Yeah, keep your options open. And I, I'm not picking on college students. This, you know, Americans, I've heard it described this way. We are... We are love-obsessed and commitment-phobic. We are commitment-phobic people. I Really, look yourself in the mirror. I mean, most of us are commitment-phobic. So, if I am not beating, I hope I'm not beating a dead horse here, but uh, there was a MIT professor, Dan Ariely. A few years ago, he devised a, um, an experimental co- computer program to explore this this uh, American cultural phenomenon about our obsessive need to keep our, keep our options open. And so on the computer screen, there are three doors. And behind each door, there is a certain amount of money. And there's actually a real payout in this game. The, ga- the goal of the game is to go in through, into, through a door, into a room, and get you know, a certain amount of money. And you're able to do that by a click of your mouse. Each, each player is given... I think it was like 100 clicks. And so you click on this door, you go in, that's one click. Um, 
And then if you choose to click on the other door, then go into the other room. Well, if you choose to go to a second room, it, it requires two clicks. Well, the most rational strategy in this game would be to check out what all three rooms have to offer, and then you stick in the room that offers the highest reward. But there was a catch, because he's a behavioral psychologist, um, in addition to being a, a math professor. And the catch is, once you click to stay in a room, the other doors begin to shrink in size. And unless you click and to go into the, to one of those doors that is shrinking in size, eventually it will disappear altogether. So what Aureli discovered is that even if players knew that the amount of money behind a door was likely less money than the room that they were in, nevertheless, if that door was disappearing, they would use their clicks to keep all the doors open, which ended up actually, and, and he did this on MIT students, and they ended up with like 15 to 20% less in overall payout as a result. And here is his conclusion. It's very good. He said, even more than having options available, players simply cannot abide watching options vanish. So how does it relate to our passage? David made a covenant promise years ago, a promise that he was obligated to, a promise that nobody expected him even to keep. And indeed, he would have been advised in the strongest possible terms not to keep this promise because it could be a threat to his kingdom. Even Mephibosheth, as you can tell, Mephibosheth doesn't expect him to keep the promised covenant obligation. But that is the power of covenant. In the eyes of God, that is the power of covenant. And you know, for most of us in this room, the only covenant that we've ever entered into is the covenant of marriage. And we all know that we live in a day and age where, where friends, I mean, if your marriage is going bad, most friends are not going to come to you and say, remember that covenant promise to, to cherish to love and to cherish, to cherish, to cherish until death do us part. Most friends are not going to come and say that that is the power of covenant. Um, what they will say to us is, is simply, you know, divorce the bum. It's true. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, one other story, an esteemed theologian in, in our tradition, in our circles, one of the early professors at Princeton Theological Seminary, he married his wife Annie, and they were on a, their honeymoon. He was doing his PhD studies in Germany at the time. They were on their honeymoon. They were doing a walking tour of the Harz Mountains somewhere in north-central Germany when they were caught in a terrific thunderstorm. And, and she, got, she caught a cold she was, I think, traumatized by all of it. She became deathly ill and never fully recovered and became, for all intents and purposes, an invalid for the rest of, his, of her life. For the next 49 years, B.B. Warfield, as he is known, would only leave her for, for his seminary duties and at that for only two hours at a time. For the next 49 years, his world was almost entirely confined to there. Isn't that interesting? We live in a time where there is no there, there. And he lived there, there, 
for 49 years. And that's the power of covenant, isn't it? I really don't know the answer. Like, how do we get back to that? Um, And I don't want to be naively nostalgic and suggest that, oh, the olden days were were better. but, But how do we get back to the point where obligations are thought to be something desirable and good (laughs) and something that I'm going to hold to no matter how much it costs me or no matter what my counselors and advisors say to me. How do we get get back to that? Uh, Rhetorical question. I, I don't know. What I want you to notice then as we move on, uh, I guess this is the next point, notice the progression Mephibosheth is living in Lodebar. He's in no man's land. He is mired in shame. He is a dead dog. He is without hope. He is without a future. And then he is elevated to the king's table and essentially made one of the king's sons. As I said earlier, he's family. He's given land. He's given provisions. What did Mephibosheth do to earn all of that? What did Mephibosheth... Oh, jeez. <laughs> What did he do? He did nothing to earn all of that. It was, it was all for Jonathan's sake, but it was credited to Mephibosheth as an act of peculiar covenant grace. This, this chesed, as we said earlier. Notice the progression. Again, cast out, helpless, without hope, but David. Does that remind you of anything? Dead in our trespasses and sins, without hope, but God, who is rich in mercy. Um, it, what we have in chapter 9 is nothing, nothing other than the gospel in miniature. It's the gospel in miniature. Where we merit absolutely nothing, but all because of Christ's sake, chesed is credited to us. And as we'll talk about at the end of the sermon, and we're brought to the king's table to eat there for the rest of our lives. It's really, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. So what kind of people should that make us? Uh, I've already alluded to one aspect of it. It should make us the kind of people who abide by our commitments. We should commit to a spouse. Uh, We can commit to a church. We can commit. But there's another aspect of it, and it's not that surprising, but it's just good to be reminded about. Richard Dawkins Uh, He famously said that faith is one of the world's greatest evils, comparable to the smallpox smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. And then Christopher Hitchens, in like manner, famously said that religion poisons everything without exception. Now, granted, these are quotations from your militant atheist wing in America, or, 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 you know, I guess those are are both British men. But but is that really true? Have, Have Christians really poisoned Everything is, a, a lot of people today, you know, the, the largest growing religion in the world is no religion. The nuns, that's the largest growing religion in the world today. And, um, you know, the, the nuns have a deeply negative, suspicious attitude towards religion. I mean, if you haven't noticed that, it's real. And, and they believe that. They believe that in some sense, Religion, you know, poisons everything. It's why I don't want to be a part of it, they say. Is, but is that really true? No, it's not. What kind of people should this make us? When the good Samaritan encounters his battered victim on the road, 
he shows him chesed, a particular form of chesed. We read in Luke's gospel that he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will pay you when I come back. He showed him hesed. And, and that's what we've seen down throughout the ages of church history. People who have received the chesed of God, they give the chesed of God. For example, number one, Christians saved babies left to die in the Roman Empire in the first century. Those babies were disproportionately girls left to be exposed in the middle of the streets because I mean, you don't want to have to take care of a girl. She's not going to be your male heir. She's, she doesn't help with the family farm. Um, it was essentially the earliest form of abortion. But Christians, they were the only people in the Roman Empire, Empire who showed chesed to those children. Secondly, Christians sought to end the gladiatorial games and stop the needless slaughter and violence Within the Colosseum. Remember, you may remember, it was largely the slaves and the lower class who were the ones who would be most likely to be slaughtered in the Colosseums. And, and the Christians, they, they show chesed to them. You can tell I enjoy saying that word. <laughs> Number three, Christian pastors treated the sick and buried the dead when the bubonic plague swept through Europe in the 14th and 15th century. In three years, from 1348 to 1351, the average life expectancy in Europe went from 34 to 17. It was cut in half. A third of Europe's population was, was killed. But it was the Christian clergy who stayed in the cities to care for the sick and bury the dead. Number four, Christians fought the slave trade, primarily in Great Britain in the 18th and 19th century. They rammed abolition through, through parliaments in the beginning of the 19th century, and they used British gunboats to stop the tr- slave trade across the Atlantic. Number five, Christians began in the latter part of the 19th century what has been called by scholars the benevolent empire. They started hospitals, they started schools, they started orphanages, they started sanatoriums, poorhouses, and, and much more to care for the needy. And today, you know, we're in a political season, so politicians' tax returns start getting, you know, leaked to the public. Have you, have you seen, I'm not naming anybody, but have you seen, you know, the, the charitable giving amounts of today's politicians? Have you, have you noticed that some of these guys, I mean, they're giving like 1% or less than 1% to charitable giving out of all of their out of all of their money. Um, and actually, that's true of both sides, the Republicans and the Democrats. You look at the charitable giving of Christians today compared to the charitable giving of the secular and the nuns, and it's, it's immensely disproportionate. You go to any, any charitable agency in a city in America today and ask them, who are the people who come in and volunteer here? And it's, and it's, it's always religious folk. And disproportionately so. Again, I may be beating a dead horse, but I, the last story I want to give you, I love this column that was written a couple years ago by Nicholas Kristof, a columnist for the New York Times. Um, 
Because he's writing to a group of people who are deeply skeptical about the good of religion in America. And he starts to call them in this way. He says, If you subscribe to the caricature of devout religious believers as mostly sanctimonious hypocrites, the kind who rake in cash and care about human life only when it is unborn, then come visit Dr. Tom Katina, age 51, a Catholic missionary from Amsterdam, New York, who is the only doctor at the 435-bed Mother of Mercy Hospital nestled in the Nuba Mountains in the south of Sudan. We prayed about the wars in Sudan. For that matter, he goes on, Dr. Tom is the only doctor permanently based in the Nuba Mountains at all to serve a population of more than a half a million people. Just about every day, the Sudanese government drops bombs or shells on the civilians in the Nuba, Nuba Mountains, part of a scorched earth strategy to defeat an armed rebellion here. The United States and other world powers have abandoned the area, so it is left to Dr. Tom, as he's universally known here, to pry out shrapnel from women's flesh and amputate limbs of children, even as he delivers babies and removes appendixes. Um, He does all of this off of the electrical grid, without running water, uh, without a telephone, or so much as even an x-ray machine, while under the constant threat of bombing, for, for Sudan has dropped not one, not two, not three, but 11 bombs on the hospital that he works in. 11. The first time this happened, Dr. Tom sheltered with the uh, patients terrified in a newly dug pit for an outhouse. But now the hospital is surrounded by foxholes in which patients and staff can crouch when military aircraft approach. Like, imagine a hospital like that. (laughs) Dr. Tom has worked in the Nuba Mountains for eight years, living in the hospital and remaining on call 24-7, the only exception when once a year he's unconscious with malaria. He acknowledges missing pretzels and ice cream, and more seriously, a family. He parted from his serious girlfriend when he moved to Africa, and, his, and the Nuba Mountains are not the best place for dating. For his risks and his sacrifices, Dr. Tom earns a massive $350 a month with no retirement plan or regular health insurance. And why does he do it? He says he's driven by his faith. There are also secular aid workers doing heroic work. But the people I've noticed all over over the years in the most impossible places, like Nuba, where any any reasonable person has already fled, those people, this is Christoph speaking anecdotally, those people are disproportionately unreasonable because of their faith. And here's the, the money quote. Certainly the Nubans, who include Muslims and Christians alike, seem to revere Dr. Tom, said Lieutenant Colonel Aburas Albino Kuku of the rebel military force. People in the Nuba Mountains will never forget his name. People are praying that he never dies. A Muslim chief named Hussein Nul Ukuri Kupai offered an even more unusual tribute. He said, Dr. Tom is Jesus Christ. Eh? Pardon? The chief explained that Jesus healed the sick, made the blind see, and helped the lame walk. And that is what 
Dr. Tom does every day. We have our missions conference coming up. (laughs) I mean, tell me this. You believe you have been shown immeasurable chesed. What do you do with it? I mean, what do you do with it? What what do each one of us do with that? Because the people who have been shown chesed are the people who give chesed. I want to finish by simply uh, thinking about the Lord's Supper I mean, we have Mephibosheth, who is elevated to the king's table. Uh, God has laid a a table before him in in the presence of his enemies. And he should be regarded as one of the enemies, Psalm 23, but he's not. Uh, I love this quote we have on the front of the bulletin. I hope you already read it, but let me read it again. You know, when David had been driven from the king's table, Jonathan took the initiative He sought David out and made a covenant with him. And and now, when the king's table is David's table, he seeks out the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, and invites the crippled man to the table. Mephibosheth could have been perceived as a threat. Instead, he's welcomed as a royal son. And David is a good shepherd for Israel. Uh, We are gathering around a table here. And all of us, at one point, belong to the house of a previous king. All of us were lame in both of our feet. All of us ruled over a paper kingdom in a land named Lodabar. And yet, despite our helpless state, God showed us chesed. And through his great son, through the great son of David, Jesus Christ, we have been invited into his court. We have been seated with his princes. We have come knowing ourselves to be nothing but dead dogs. We say with Mephibosheth, who am I that the great God of heaven should show such kindness to me? Who am I that I should be invited and that I should come? And yet we come. We eat today on the basis of sheer chesed. And I just want you you to revel in that, that miracle. Revel in that miracle. It is God's chesed for Christ's sake. Just as it was... Hesed for Jonathan, credit to Mephibosheth. It is hesed to us, credit to us because of Christ. Um, I want you to revel in that as we pass the bread, as we drink the wine. And I want you to pray today that more Mephibosheths would be invited to the table. You know, especially with our missions conference this weekend, to remember that the kingdom is not complete, friends, until the table is full. The kingdom is not complete until the table is full. Amen.